Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm Nicholas Brown. I'm currently head of the School of History at the ANU, within which the National Centre for Bi Biography sits. And sometimes it doesn't seem to sit within us. It seems to sit over us as one of the contributions that we genuinely make as the Australian National University to a national conversation in the area of history, and particularly biography, but also clearly as a conference such as this test uh, uh, evidences to an international conversation. A conference like this is inevitably an unfolding conversation over these three days, and it's a great pleasure to be a part of that. Uh, and this session today, bringing the, the nation back in, a debate on the contemporary role of national, of national dictionaries, clearly sits right in the middle of the kind of discussions I know you're having, where national dictionaries have come from, but I suppose more challengingly, where they're going to, and what the future of the national dictionary should be in an internationally integrated age. This afternoon's discussion clearly sits right in the middle of that. You have the program notes on the individual speakers in your handbook. There's nothing more redundant than for me to go through and introduce them at length. But it is, uh, it's a wonderful combination of expertise on which we're drawing this afternoon. Jock Phillips, enormous experience with Tiara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand. Uh, Malcolm Albrook, who is deputy editor of the, National Dic the Australian Dictionary of Biography, but has pioneered the development of an indigenous Australian Dictionary of Biography under those auspices. And Kent Fitch, who brings enormous experience in computing and database underpinnings of the digitization of those resources. So I'm really just going to hand over to the three of those in the order in which they appear in, the, in your program. Implicitly sitting behind the panel this afternoon is a debate a discussion, a genuine exchange of views and often perhaps conflicting views about what should be the future of national dictionaries of biography in a rapidly changing world of content and capacity. And I hope through those papers and through our discussion of them, we'll start touching on many of those themes. So nothing more from me. Uh, Jock, over to you. Kia ora tato, which in Māori means welcome everybody. It's, I must say it's a great privilege to be here in this beautiful, extremely cold city. Um, and I must say after this morning's session, I almost came to believe in the value of the art of biography, um, which for reasons for which I'll explain in a minute. But first a couple of apologies. I have to say I wrote a paper I wasn't aware until I got here that I was part of a debate. Um, and when I looked at the title of the debate, it said, uh, bringing the nation back in, which seemed to me a little ironical given the fact that I represent a jurisdiction where the nation has cut off all funding for both Tiara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, and the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. So the nation is certainly not coming back in, it's very much disappearing out. Um, I said that I was almost convinced about the value of biography. Um, I've never been a great enthusiast about biography because I'm primarily a historian who always believed that essentially the lives of individuals were a, reflex of, were a reflection of much larger social forces and that individuals were but, were but the flotsam and the jetsam of, of history. Um, and in a sense, what I'm interested in is things which actually have been talked about this morning, is how one uses the great database which dictionaries of national biography represent to try to distill to some of the great movements of history. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples from my experience working primarily through Tiara and for a time when I... From from the period from the year 2000 when I was um, uh, in, in responsible for the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, how we use some of that material to try to illuminate wider ideas. Uh, can I get the PowerPoint? <laughs> Sorry. Um, 
Okay, I took over the dictionary biography in the year 2000. Uh, it had completed five volumes, and the assumption was that, that it would have to go through into a period of dormancy um, because there weren't enough dead people to create a new volume. Um, so I started looking at this great tonga, treasure, as, 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 we, as we call it, and realised that the first thing to do was to digitise it. So I put all my energies and we managed to digitise all those 3,000 biographies in both English and in Te Reo Māori as a millennium project and launched it in the year 2000. And then I started to look further at what the resources were and I realised that there was lying behind the dictionary a major database that just as the ADB does, we had working parties who went out and contributed names and they all filled in a form which was, you know, background, birth, significance, religion and so forth, all of which had been entered in to a digital database. So I thought, well, that's a great resource because it widens the group from the 3,000 in the DNZB to 15,000 in, in the database. My first idea was that we should make this publicly available. Uh, people said, no, you can't do that, it hasn't been checked. And I said, well, that's all the more reason to make it publicly available because that way we'd get it, hopefully, through crowdsourcing and crowd support, improved. But it never happened. But what it did mean was that I had this resource at my fingertips. Now, at the time, I was working on a major study of the cultural origins of the New Zealand people. We had done a mammoth search of death registers, and I wanted to ask the question, exactly who were the people who came from Britain and Ireland to New Zealand, and what was their cultural background, and how far does that explain the distinctive pattern of New Zealand culture? So we did a lot of work on the death registers, found out exactly where people came from and what proportions and so forth. But what it didn't really tell me was exactly what the kind of cultural baggage was that they brought with them. So what I decided to do was to do a sort of search in this 15,000 people database. And what I found was some very interesting things. 66% of the database of those who were born in the UK had been born in England. But almost more than three quarters of them, more than three quarters of the people who were defined in that database as making a contribution to public administration had been born in England. In other words, they were way overrepresented. 68% of those who were defined in terms of their contribution to sport had, had been born in England. So what one got was a clear indication of the contribution of the English in those areas. Similarly, in terms of the Scots, one found strong overrepresentation in terms of those who contributed to education, to science, to health, that is to the, the medical profession. And in the Irish, not surprisingly, a four-time representation to the police. And there were other things that were of interest. The fact that those who were defined in the database as making a contribution to social reform, which was meant primarily things like prohibition, temperance, women, uh, women's suffrage and so forth, 57% had come from the Methodist, Baptists and Presbyterian community. Way, way, um, much, much higher than their distribution in the um, data set as a whole. So what this made me realise is what we should do is make that database available to everybody and allow them to make these kinds of analyses of them. Secondly, my second example comes from Tiara. Now Tiara was and is a complete encyclopedia of New Zealand. We, we got the idea about the year 1998, partly because the DNZB was winding down, and my idea was 
while we waited for enough people to die in order to create the next volume, we could use those intellectual resources to create a new Encyclopedia of New Zealand. There had been a major government-funded Encyclopedia of New Zealand in three volumes coming out, believe it or not, in 1966, which seems to be the favourite year, this year at, at this conference. Um, we had already done two things. We'd set up a history, New Zealand history website and we had digitised the DNZB. And I was staggered at the public response to those ventures, the number of visitors we had and the use that people were made, made of them. So when people came to me and said we need a new national encyclopaedia, my immediate thought was, well, we, what we should do is do a print encyclopaedia. But once we'd had the success of those two websites, I thought, no, the way to do it is to have a born digital encyclopaedia, um, which had all the advantages of multimedia presentation and searchability and accessibility and so forth. Now, it just so happened that the Prime Minister at that time, Helen Clark, had been a graduate of the History Department of Auckland University, and the Minister of Finance, Michael Cullen, was an ex-lecturer in history. So um, I managed to get 15 minutes with each of them and walked out with something like $15 million worth of money to create a new encyclopedia of New Zealand. The question then came, what would be the relationship between the encyclopedia and the DNZB, the, the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography? I mean, traditionally, encyclopedias have biographies. But there didn't seem to be a lot of point in commissioning a whole lot of new biographies when we had just completed a major dictionary of national biography. Wouldn't it be much better to bring the two together? And what I wanted to do was make sure that as we brought these, the, the, as we developed the encyclopedia, we made the marriage with the dictionary not just a marriage of convenience, but something that would give value to both. So, let me see if I can get on to the... We're on it. Um, so what we did was uh, decide that for every entry, and this is what an entry looks like, uh, this is the entry on the English, and what we did, did a lot of work on how people use the web, we decided to subdivide that into lots of smaller items, shown here. And if we go to this one, just as an example, on popular culture, uh, that page is round about 500 words long or thereabouts. And what we decided is that there would be up to six biographies from the dictionary attached to that entry. So if you go down here, you find Edward Blakelock, who um, was an important lexicographer. We see Kathleen Nunnally, who was a very fine tennis player, came from England, did more than anything to encourage tennis playing in the urban districts of Wellington. Joel Pollock, who was the f made the first brewery in New Zealand, also from England. And Henry Redwood, who was regarded as the father of the New Zealand turf. So there one immediately got a sort of enrichment of the generalisations that were included in this thing, where you've got beer and you've got um, rugby and soccer and, and football and so forth. Um, but I also was very keen, uh, and, and what we found was, if we go to another entry, there's one on mountaineering, for example, that what the biographies did was greatly enrich the story. So if you go to this section, you'll find, for example, that it tells you um, in defiance of Māori tapu, if you, if, you, if, if, if you see this area here, in defiance of Māori, Māori tapu, Taranaki was climbed in 1839 by the whaler James Heberley and the scientist Ernest Diefenbach, Jane Maria Atkinson's ascent of Taranaki was the first notable climb by a European woman. And that's really all it basically tells you about the history of climbing of mountaineering. 
But if you go to the um, biographies, here there's a biography of a guy called Harry Peters, who was actually from a, of a German background. And uh, here in this paragraph here, you, what you find is a much greater richness of detail about the history of the climbing of Mount Taranaki, about because of the popularity of the Neuruja campsite was formed and so forth, and how they established a place for as a base for climbers, and how he developed a tradition of guiding people up and so forth. So what one found was that the biographies hugely enriched the, um, the, uh, the encyclopedia. On the other hand, if you go to a story, another biography from that particular sub-entry, a guy called Char Charlie Douglas, who just happened to have died in 1916, so this is another centenary. Um, if you go from his biography, you read it in isolation and you don't quite know really what his largest significance was. You know that he was an explorer, you know that he was a surveyor, but how important was he? Well, if one then goes to the European Exploration Entry, there you find a whole section about Mr. Explorer Douglas, and you suddenly locate his place in the whole history of exploration and get some estimate of the importance of his role. Similarly, you find him mentioned in the section on bird watching, where again, under that section, land-based observers, you see the diaries of the West Coast explorer Charlie Doug Douglas contain fascinating descriptions of bird behaviour, and you immediately realise he's got a great significance there. And if you go to the kiwi entry, you get a little thing here which says, among the few Europeans who ate kiwi was the 19th century explorer Charlie Douglas. He thought the eggs made great fritters when fried in oil from the kapaka, when fried in oil from the kakapo bird, but was less sure about the meat. After spraining an ankle, he came across two kiwi, and being famished, he ate them. He said the best description was a piece of pork boiled in an old coffin. <laughs> so I think the point is quite clear. The two work beautifully together. The biographies enrich the stories of the encyclopedia, but the encyclopedia, in turn, um, gives you context and gives you, I was going to say flavour, that's probably a little bit unfortunate term, <laughs> For the, uh, for, the, for, for the individual. Um, we also decided that it was absurd to not have, in an encyclopedia of New Zealand, biographies of certain really significant people. I mean, if you go to an encyclopedia, you would like to, um, a New Zealand encyclopedia, you would expect to have an entry on Edmund Hillary big man. But because he had died after we finished work on the dictionary, he wasn't there. So we took something like 15 people and decided to add biographies. And what we did was decided to not only add new biographies, but actually use the Tiara format and present them rather differently. And that meant, for example, that um, the normal biography, when we digitise it, was simply one great wad of text, one huge great page. Now, all the evidence is that people don't like reading great wads of text on the page. They like to be helped. So we split it up into sub-entries. So you see, for example, Hillary's, sub uh, Hillary's life has eight sub-entries. And within those sub-entries, we also split it up with headings all the way along. And we greatly used the fact that this was a born digital biography to greatly enrich the multimedia resources. So, you know, you get obvious um, photo photographs of, of, of the bloke, but um, you also get, you know, the possibility of little interactive maps. Um, this one, you know, showing the... Uh, Camp 6, Camp 7, Camp 8, and so forth. Um, and we also included a whole lot of films as well. So great, uh, an increase in the quality of the uh, biographies and of the presentation and of the usability of them.
just finish. Um, now, as we were coming to the end of this project, um, I decided that we needed to go back on the original promise and restart the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, looking at all those people who had flourished since the 1960s. But I had learnt from the Tiara experience that actually integrating larger themes and the biographies together had real value. So I came up with this idea that what we should do is a major project on the making of modern New Zealand, which would have the themes of New Zealand since 1960 and would be prepared alongside the relevant biographies and that the two would interact all the way. Um, it was a very popular idea. People could see immediately the value from both points of view and that it was a period of time which had been revolutionary in terms of New Zealand's experience. But sadly, although the ministers, I have to say, were always totally supportive, the ministry within which we worked was tied for money and as Tiara came to the end, they thought there's a body of money that we can use, and they took it from the baseline. And so in 2014, everybody who had worked for Tiara and everybody who had worked for the dictionary and both projects essentially came to an end. So that is the, na the nation being taken out. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jock. That was, uh, that was very entertaining and very informative. Uh, I'm going to talk about something completely different, as uh, is the nature of this particular panel. Uh, it's formed around the uh, theme of bringing the nation back in, and I'm not quite sure where my uh, presentation fits within that, uh, that notion, but anyway, here goes. Um, as the managing editor of the ADB, uh, one of my roles is to handle inquiries from the public, uh, a proportion of which consistently relate to the way Aboriginal and, to a lesser extent, Torres Strait Islander people are portrayed. Correspondents may draw attention to, for example, uh, the way some of the figures, from, particularly from Volume 1 and Volume 2, which deal with the very early phase of colonisation, are portrayed. Uh, and I think particularly, uh, for example, of the biographies of Benelong and Arabanu, uh, two figures from uh, Sydney Cove of 1788 and the immediate aftermath of that uh, period, which were written by Eleanor Dark. Um, she's one of the uh, revered figures in Australian literature and history, um, whose 1966 entry relied on research that was current at the time, but which has been uh, entirely superseded. Uh, I also think of Yagen, a, a Noongar warrior from the Swan River area, written by another literary icon of Western Australia, uh, Dame Alexandra Hasluck. And similarly, similar criticisms can be levelled at that entry. I also get uh, uh, many nominations for missing people um, from the period uh, not only since 1788, but also uh, in the period before that even. Uh, and these are dealing or nominating Indigenous people who correspondents consider should be in the ADB. They warrant inclusion in the ADB, not only for their contribution, but also as a sample of Aboriginal Australian life. And uh, recently, for example, we've had uh, uh, a Darug man from Sydney, uh, Gauji, and also uh, the Noongar elder, Mijirigu, uh, have been nominated by people writing in, saying, why isn't this person in the ADB? Um, we also get many inquiries about contested interpretations around, uh, I guess, what can be best be called a terra nullius framework, uh, which uh, uh, a concept which sees Australia as an empty land that was ripe for the settlement. Um, 
we, I get complaints, uh, fairly regular complaints, from people uh, writing and just saying, look, this just isn't correct. And indeed, since the Mabo decision uh, by the High Court of 1992, the terra nullius framework or, or, and as a legal uh, concept have, have been um, uh, pretty well uh, re rendered redundant. Um, so often in this area, inquiries will also concern the biographies of European uh, political or judicial figures or police and the uh, contemporary relevance of such notions as uh, pacification as hostility, particularly uh, as in hostile natives, and also, in, indeed, the whole notion of discovery, uh, particularly when uh, uh, people record quite openly that they were guided to these places by uh, Aboriginal people. Plainly, it wasn't discovery to them. Um, now, in the current ADB corpus uh, of about 12,700 entries, uh, we have about, uh, we have exactly, in fact, 200 entries of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that uh, comprises just over 1.5% of the total uh, ADB corpus. Um, it can uh, uh, thus be cast, I suppose, as uh, underrepresentation. Um, uh, for example, the most recent census of a couple of years ago estimated that 2.5% of the Aboriginal population identified as Torres Strait, or Aborig uh, Torres Strait Islander or Aboriginal people. Uh, if the a ADB was to be bound by such measures, there would be many more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander entries in the ADB. But of course, and uh, noting what was uh, said this morning in Philip Carter's paper, uh, the ADB is not always planned according to notions of representation, uh, particularly uh, proportionate to various segments of the population. But if there were, uh, women would make up well over half uh, than, uh, the, uh, the uh, proportion of entries uh, rather than the current 12%. Uh, and also, I guess, the first two volumes of the ADB, volumes one and two, would have documented many more Aboriginal lives than the eight that were published in 1966 and 67. After all, as Melanie pointed out this morning, the population of Europeans did not exceed the Aboriginal population in New South Wales until around 1840. And indeed, in Western Australia, it was probably not until the 1890s or even the early uh, 1900s that uh, the European population exceeded the number of Aboriginal people. Nonetheless, representation does have important symbolic value, and the ADB has drawn criticism, significant criticism over the years, for its relative disregard, uh, particularly in earlier volumes, for Indigenous people in the national story. The underrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the ADB is partly a consequence of the historiographical limitations of the short-form biographical genre which places a high value on verifiable sources to establish the principal facts of a life, notably birth, marriage, and death certifications. The project of national biography in a settler colonial nation such as Australia has not dealt comfortably with an indigenous environment that signifies both a presence and an absence. The former a reminder of a long and unbroken custodianship that preceded by thousands of years, but was disrupted by colonization, and the latter a powerful signifier of Aboriginal dispossession. The ADB on its homepage defines the Dictionary of National Biography as, and I quote, a collection of interpretive biographical articles on people selected for their significance in a nation's history. Thus, according to this definition, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people earn a place in the ADB by virtue of their impact on the Australian nation. But this impact, or contribution indeed, should not be understood in narrow terms, uh, terms which emphasise service to the nation, although many Indigenous subjects have fought in overseas wars, served as guides in the European exploration of the country, worked with the police, or for pastoral station managers. Others are in the ADB because, 
They opposed colonization. There are nine resistance fighters in the ADB, all of whom uh, come from the 19th century and who sought to marshal opposition to the incursion of Europeans onto their land. There are many others who are in the ADB because they oppose the system of law to which they had become subject. People such as Eddie Marbo, uh, 1936 to 1992, uh, John Kuwata from the Northern Territory, uh, 1940 to 1991, uh, Vincent Lingari, uh, 1919 to 1988, and Andrew Anna Jimmy, Jimmy, Jean Jimmy, 1912 to 1991. Uh, yet in opposing the system of law, they contributed to the current Australian legal canon, which recognises Aboriginal land rights and native title because they were prominent as leaders of their communities, either at the, the local, the state, or the national level. Over the past three years, uh, the ADB has been involved in uh, developing a strategy around indigenous inclusion, in the, uh, in the, uh, both in the way the biography is conceived and planned, and also in how indigenous entries are written. Uh, a proposal certainly does seek to expand the number of Indigenous people in the ADB, but more importantly, I suggest, it also contests views about the role of Indigenous people in the European discovery and exploration and the other forms of labour they performed. The proposal also seeks to consider why and in what ways Indigenous biography might be distinctive and how that distinctiveness can be recognised in biographical forms and expectations, including how it might be extended beyond the conception of the individual person, for instance, to collective biographies and the biographies of important spiritual figures. According to Atwood and McGowan, writing in, 19, in 2001, uh, because Indigenous biography often originates in the private domain, it may be, and I quote, hidden from history, presenting interpretations that are very different from the dominant ones. Importantly, Indigenous biography poses challenges for how we might conceptualise notions of the national in biography. The first general editor of the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, Bill Oliver, he was the first, wasn't he? I should check. Yep. Um, suggested that national biographies have traditionally been set up to, and I quote, serve some kind of nation-building function. Seeking, particularly in settler colonies, so, such as Australia, New Zealand and Canada, to be, and I quote again, monumental, celebratory and germane to national identity. How then might a di dictionary of national biography incorporate historical perspectives that go beyond the foundations of the current nation state? Can biographical evidence move beyond the traditional documentary fare, those verifiable facts of a life, to consider non-documentary sources? In considering these questions, it is useful to also think about approaches of other dictionaries of national biography. We've heard a lot about the ODMB this morning. And it deals comfortably, I feel, with a long history of the British Isles, a slow, steady evolution of a nation, state. Unlike Australia, there is no 1788 moment which signifies the foundation of the nation. Thus, the ODMB includes biographies of figures known only from their remains, their skeletal remains. For example, Lindo Man um, and the so-called Red Lady of Haviland, who actually wasn't a lady, but uh, uh, is, uh, I think it's still indeterminate, the gender of the Red Lady of Haviland. Uh, and but the Red Lady, Lady is an individual who might have lived around 33,000 years ago and is described in the entry in the ODMB as not a historical character but an incomplete prehistoric human skeleton. It goes on to comment, the biography of this once living person can only be recovered through the historical interpretations of the skeleton as a scientific object and of the context in which it was found. 
In this interpretation, therefore, the Red Lady is seen as not a biography of a person, but of a skeleton, and also of the scientists that have analyzed and interpreted these skeletal remains since it was unearthed in 1823. The ODMB also doesn't shy away from publishing the biographies of legendary semi-mythical or biblical figures. Uh, it has a biography of Britannia, uh, who flourished between the 1st century to the 21st century AD. <laughs> and who is described, her occupation, in effect, is an allegory of a nation. Imagine being able to put that on your CV. <laughs> Emblem of empire and a patriotic icon. They, the ODMB also carries a, a biography of Arthur, uh, who flourished in or before the 6th century and who is described as, quote, a legendary warrior and supposed king of Britain, having an attested career that is entirely posthumous. And as a biblical figure, it also carries the biography of St. Andrew, the patron uh, saint of Scotland and the apostle. As I've said, the ADB largely begins in 1788, although there are a number of figures, such as... Um, the Dutch explorer Dirk Hartog is uh, one I think of that comes to mind, 1580 to 1621, and also, also the Dutch East India Company official Francisco Pelsart, which is a fascinating and very gory biography, uh, 1571 to 1627, who literally ran into Australia before that year, 1788. So the questions I want to pose... Uh, in this debate, I don't know whether we're actually going to debate it, but it's framed as a debate, is how can a journal such as the ADB incorporate these longer histories of the nation, these foundational narratives that straddle 1788? How can it respond to the impressive body of evidence for a human presence that goes back over 50,000 years? How can we write biographies of figures such as Mungo Man and Mungo Woman, whose physical remains leave tantalising evidence of lives lived 42,000 years ago? And what of the foundational narratives that speak of heroes who not only created the physical features of the country, whose movements and presence is in fact inscribed upon the land, but who left powerful evidence of their lives uh, in the laws that their descendants now follow and live by, and also in stories and song. Are these biographical? Now, the ADB has uh, responded to such questions by entering a partnership with Indigenous people, and more on the D Indigenous Working Party tomorrow. In respect, uh, they respect and draw upon Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander frameworks of knowledge. If the ADB is serious about such a relationship, then it is inevitable that concepts of nation will also be questioned and ultimately broadened. Thank you. That's my part of the debate. Hello. Um, firstly, my name's Kent Fitch. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Christine for inviting me here today. I think uh, she, when she contacted me, she wanted the devil's advocate. Um, so I'll try to do that. The, the problem is it's, I'm a bit melancholy about doing it because, um, unlike Jock, I think I uh, like biographies. I, I find them quite inspiring and, uh, or, or cautionary, and I, I like the mix of them. But um, nevertheless, I... I think the ADB is going in completely the wrong direction and uh, is about to um, not self-destruct but evaporate. Um, so today I'm going to argue that uh, national dictionaries are in, indeed wonderful things and, uh, um, but their failure to engage with the, you might call the free-range internet and in particular with Wikipedia is, is leading them on a, a, a steady path to decline. Uh, and irrelevance. Um, I'm going to use the Australian uh, 
uh, dictionary biography as an example, but um, I hope through doing that I'm going to demonstrate to you the urgent need for authors and uh, publishers and editors uh, to make sure that their content is put up front in, uh, front in front of all readers of the internet. Having something available on the internet is no longer uh, enough. It really has to be uh, unavoidable. And uh, what I'd like to do now, uh, just uh, Eddie Marbo has been mentioned a couple of times today. Uh, I'd just like you to have a, his 80th anniversary of his birthday was on Wednesday and many would have noticed a, a Google Doodle perhaps uh, celebrating that, inviting you to click through and find out more information about that. Uh, I'd like you to have a think about how many people you think clicked through to the biography of Eddie Marbo on Wikipedia and how many clicked through to the biography of Eddie Marbo on the ADB. There's an enormous discrepancy between those in the quality between those two biographies. But um, I'll come back to that in a sec after work out how to do something here. Oh God. <laughs> Maybe I'll press that. You can see why I'm in IT and not history. It'd be disastrous. I was. Okay, so one, one person I'd like to start off by looking at is um, Henry Seacamp, um, who's an interesting chap, uh, the first editor of the Ballarat Times. And uh, if you wanted to find some information on him, you'd probably type his name into Google and you'd get that. And uh, you'd have a choice what to do next. Um, if you can't read that, the second one is the ADB. The first one, of course, is the Wikipedia entry. The interesting picture on the right, although he is the editor of a, a magazine and a leading figure at the Eureka Stockade, uh, it is a picture of him being horsewhipped by uh, Lola Montez, uh, international woman of mystery and exotic dancer who descended on Ballarat uh, at the end of her sort of second-rate career to try and make a whole lot of money from miners by getting chucked nuggets at her. Uh, and uh, the Battle of Ballarat, as it was described, was written up in the Melbourne Punch and that's where that, that picture comes from. So uh, bold, Sir, uh, bold Henry Seacamp is sort of reduced to a... Uh, a man who got a whipping from an exotic dancer. Now, the, you have to choose carefully between those two links on that, that Google result page because if you go to the first one, you get this. Um, it's beautiful. He turned his vitriolic pen against the Irish-born Lola Montez, accusing her of immorality. You can imagine it. The, they took to each other with whips in the main street of Ballarat and accused each other of assault and libel, creating a public sensation. No, I'm not making this up. This is from an authorised uh, biography. The court cases were dismissed, but public sympathy, sympathy went to Lola and the fiery editor lost much of his popularity. And then he sort of uh, skulked away from Ballarat and died. Natural courses accelerated by intemperance. You can imagine that, can't you? You don't really need to know much more about Henry Seacamp. His whole life is pretty much summarised there. But Carboni chips in that um, his energy never abated, though the whole legion of Victorian red tape this is in the gold rush, wanted to dry his inkstand. So he was the only man who went to jail for the Eureka Stockade Rebellion, by the way. So he had a lot of public sympathy until that fateful day he wrote a review of an exotic dancer. Now, if you choose the other biography, you get something much uh, more straightforward. He wrote a review of the Ballarat uh, of Lola Montez and the erotic spider dance, and in a notorious incident, Montez chased him with a whip. Shortly after, Clara, his wife, and Henry uh, moved to Brisbane. He died at Claremont, blah, blah, blah. If Peter Layla was a sword of the movement, my husband was a pen. Now, you can probably guess where each of those biographies come from. <laughs> Does anyone think that one comes from the ADB? No one. Okay, and you're right, of course. The first one is the beautiful biography by uh, Anne Begg Sunter in the ADB. The second one is Wikipedia. So... As uh, members of our society, which do you hope people read and appreciate? Of course, the first. Unfortunately, um, the first one is read um, the number of times designated by that little green splodge, and the Wikipedia trash is read uh, by the tall tower, which is actually eight times higher. So, if you look at uh, the best case for readership of ADB, the most influential biographies, the top 20 uh, represented by that green tower there, and they're the usual suspects in order, Henry Parks, Edmund Barton, Ned Kelly, James Cook, etc. 
These uh, are hot, uh, get many of their links because they're linked to from australia.gov.au. But uh, if you compare the, the same biographies on, Wiki, on Wikipedia, see how often they're read? They're, they're read by that, that, that reddish tower. Um, so even the best case for the ADB, the most popular biographies on the ADB, uh, are, are not really being read that often. Indeed, although that's the best case, if you look at uh, the, the biography of Errol Flynn on Wikipedia, you'll see that it's read almost the same number of times as the combined number of times of the top 20 uh, biographies on, on the ADB. And the ADB entry on Errol Flynn is, you probably can't see that bit of green there, it's just probably a pixel high, and which is handy because it's complete trash. It hardly mentions anything uh, useful about his life, it's shared with his father, and uh, anyone reading it would get a very <laughs> unusual view of the life of Errol Flynn. And okay, sure, it's old and it hasn't been revised. The Wikipedia entry on Seacamp, uh, by the way, gets a lot of hits because it's linked to from very popular pages on Wikipedia, such as Lola Montez uh, and uh, the Eureka Stockade and the Australian Sedition Laws, because he was uh, done for he went to jail for the sedition. So people are interested in that sort of thing. Now I'm going to assert here, which if this was a debate, I'd expect my fellow debaters to uh, call me crazy that the, um, the measure of the impact of ADB, or, or, or perhaps the, the extent of the lost opportunities that ADP represents, can, can somehow be measured by looking at the number of times a page is read by a human. And uh, that the more times a page is read, the more impact it's going to have on society. Now, I think that's a, some, a tenuous link, but we'll when we come back to Eddie Marbo, I'll, I'll try to make that a bit, a bit, bit firmer. So, I know I could be accused of cherry-picking by my fellow debaters here, if they were so interested. So I tried to come up with a few different sets of uh, prominent Australians and weird Australians that uh, don't look like they've been cherry-picked. I honestly did not try to cherry-pick them, by the way. Uh, so if we look at Australians of the year uh, who, who are dead and who have an ADB or, 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 or obituary Australia entry, here they are. Now, the, the blue is... Uh, the number of reads of this person on the ADB, and, and thank again to Scott and Christine for letting me have access to the statistics, the statistics. And the red is how often they've been read on Wikipedia in an arbitrary period. I used the same period over many months um, and just made the figures comparable. Now you can see um, Manning Clark does, does uh, surprisingly well. Uh, uh, well, Cardinal Gilroy to start off with, uh, the ADB entry is much more relatively popular than the Wikipedia one, although um, still in absolute numbers is not that read that often. Manning Clark is 14 to 1. Uh, Patrick White, surprisingly, is 40 to 1. So I don't, I don't know if the person who wrote the uh, biography on Patrick White is here, but um, join Wikipedia if you want what your words and your thoughts expressing the achievements of that man to be read. Uh, put them on Wikipedia instead. Now, of course, if you're... Uh, Robert Helpman, who we heard some fantastic stories about last night, um, Chief Justice, or former Chief Justice of the High Court dancing in a, uh, was it the Purple Onion in Kensington uh, with Justice Kirby. How fantastic. Um, unfortunately, uh, the ratio there is 50 to 1. Now, the problem with all these biographies here is that the ADB one is actually really good and the Wikipedia one is at best mixed. Maybe it's just Australians of the Year. What about Queensland Senators 1932? That's a, a, a riveting bunch of people. Uh, I don't think none of them are memorable. I don't think any have got a bridge named after them. They've got generic names, it seems to me, apart from Henry Foll. They, they could be anyone. But the ADB entries, again, lag way behind the readership of the Wikipedia ones, even for such a group. One on Gordon Brown. Good on you. <laughs> um, no one's read it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'd cut and paste it into Wikipedia. Just don't tell 
Christine. Okay. Um, so what, uh, there's a lovely ed ed essay in the ADB on uh, on the, 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 the seven dwarves, public service mandarins. And uh, so there's actually eight here. Uh, but for the essay actually keeps mentioning them. It doesn't stop at seven. So I, I stopped at eight. Uh, Nugget Coombs, though, you can see, um, what did he do for Australia? Well, most people go to Wikipedia to find that out. Why? I don't know. But it's, uh, the ratio there is uh, 12 to 1. Creative types. Well, Lola Montez has a lovely uh, entry in, in the ADB, of course. Unfortunately, it gets the birthplace wrong, but never mind. It was written a long time ago, and uh, she was a bit cagey about her birthplace. She said it was Limerick, that it wasn't anywhere and so exotic. Um, but no one reads it, so it doesn't really matter. The John Farrow, on the other hand, the prominent Australian um, filmmaker, born filmmaker, um, probably primarily known by many, many people because of his daughter. Uh, I don't think anyone reads that. Oh, you didn't write that as well, did you? <laughs> That's a relief. Uh, so there are some surprises there, though. I think Neville, um, Neville Shute, 40 to 1. I mean, Henry Lawson. 3.5 to 1, the ratio is there. So uh, for some reason, ADB's got a bit of a monopoly on him. That's probably a link from australia.gov.au. Um, Eternity Man, Arthur Stace, that's 8 to 1. And uh, Brett Whiteley, for goodness sakes, Brett Whiteley. That's a, there's a ratio of readership there to 100 to 1. That's not another one of yours, Nicholas. Thank goodness. The same story. I'll, I'll stop the graphs in a minute. It's just too painful. Uh, science expo exploration and sports. Um, again, uh, probably Burke and Wills. They have almost 30% market share on ADB. The rest, not so much. And I had to leave one person off this graph because the graph would have gone up to the mezzanine or something like that. Anyone idea who it is? You'll never guess, actually. Oh, that's cruel. It's Andrew Boy Charlton. Who? Well, he's, uh, there's a pool named after him in Sydney. And uh, all of a sudden, on Wikipedia this year, he's, there's been a lot of interest in him. Anyone know why? He swam in the Mauritius Peninsula. This year? <laughs> That's right. He opened a pharmacy here, I think. Or yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. He won five gold medals in three Olympic Games. And uh, there's a big pool in Sydney named after him that was renovated this year. And uh, the Daily Telegraph exposed something about it. So, uh, and probably people want to this boy Charlton. So they searched. Now, on ADB, normally a couple of hits a day. Uh, Wikipedia, normally 50 hits a day. Then all of a sudden, in March... It goes, you probably can't read the scale there, but it's four and a half thousand is the, is the top figure there. Went completely nuts. So what's going on? Well, that brings us to Eddie Marbo, 80 on Wednesday, if he was still with us. So there's the, the page of results you get. If you click through on the Google Doodle, Google, Google, Doodle. And there's the resultant number of hits on both ADB and Wikipedia. The graph scale there, so he, he leapt up from about uh, 12, hit, 12 reads a day on ADB, which is by no means bad, to 35. The Wikipedia, uh, that day is split over two days in America, so, I had to co so that it's the two actual days on the graph. The combined total reads, though, is uh, nearly 70,000. It's very hard to compare 35 and 70,000. So if you imagine the MCG on grand final day, completely full, with people selling pies and cheering and that sort of stuff, and you imagine what's on the pitch, or the ground, whatever they call it. Uh, there's two teams with their interchange bench and a coach, and they're all lined up for the national anthem. Imagine the people on the ground. That's the people who read the... Uh, the uh, Eddie Marbo biography on the ADB. Imagine the people in the grandstands go all around. That's the number of people who read the Wikipedia entry. So if you wrote the entry, if the entry on Eddie Marbo in the ADB is at all important, which of course it is, you don't get this number of people doing two clicks to read something if they're not interested in it. These people want to know the best information there is on best information. They want to get something like that Henry Seacamp review on Eddie Marbo's life. They want a short summary that hits them between the eyes that they remember 
and that it changes their life for the better. And what are they getting? Well, they're not getting that because they're getting what someone could get through a uh, fascist uh, committee on, of Wikipedia editors. And that's our problem. Oh, I did, I did have another graph, sorry. Um, <laughs> the left-hand side is the blue line is representing over some period of time the total number of reads of biographies on Wikipedia. The shorter blue line is for the obituaries. And these are biographies of living people read on, Wiki, on Wikipedia in comparison. So you can see uh, everything on ADB equals about Kate Blanchett plus Tony Abbott. It's about that sort of thing. That's just putting things into perspective. Wikipedia is one of the most popular sites in the world. It gets over 6,000 page hits per second. So ADB cannot hope to ever get... ADB, by Australian database standards, gets very high hit rate. But in the scheme of things, it's just noise, rounding error. If we compare it with looking at dead people... Now, I, it was interesting to note that... Um, uh, some other dictionaries have a, a shorter cutoff period. Poor old Heath Ledger, he's only been dead eight years now, and of course he's not going to get an ADB entry until, well, I'll probably never read it. I won't live long enough. Um, but <laughs> there's a great deal of interest in that dead person. And why aren't the best minds of capable of fantastic biography writing about him and putting that biography in ADB? Why are they having to read something second-rate in Wikipedia? Don't tell me there's not interest in it. Bon Scott, for goodness sakes. 1981, I think he died. Is he been rock and roll heaven for over 35 years? Why can't we read about him on the ADB? Is he the wrong sort of person? Well, lots of people do want to read about him because they are influenced by him. Their lives are influenced by what he did. So what could the ADB do? Well, here's this little suggestion, and... Uh, I'm going to introduce it using a biography of Norman Self, who was an engineer, uh, had a very interesting life. And of course, once you start, if you search for Norman Self, you get the same old thing, Wikipedia at the top, ADB the second. Uh, so two interesting parts of Norman Self's life were his disappointment over winning a competition to build the new Sydney Harbour Bridge. So. In 1903, uh, his plans were accepted, but it didn't proceed owing to a change of government. Biography one, that's all it says about it. Uh, then he died, and well, sometime later, and his death is described thus. He died of a heart failure at Normanhurst, a suburb named after him, and buried at Gore Hill Cemetery. The other biography is a bit longer. After the outcome of the competition had become mired in controversy, in 1902, Self won a second competition outright designed for steel cantilever bridge stretching from blah, blah, blah. They were unanimous saying it was fantastic. Um, unfortunately, construction never started to an economic slowdown, change of government and the state at the next year's election. Much to his outrage, they kept his calculations and his drawings um, and he actually never got his prize money. You can imagine. When he died, his death certificate just said, death by heart failure brought on by exertion. But his daughter added some context. On the day of his death, he climbed, he's a very old man by this stage, he climbed trees on the church ground. What? What sort of person was doing this? To lop branches as the gardener was too nervous to climb so high. That night he died in his sleep. God bless him, eh? That's an inspiration. Or maybe it's a cautionary tale. Don't cut down church trees on the... Norman reported that a father had been sanguine to the end, playful with his nephews and learning to play the oboe. However, other reports suggest Self was concealing a bitter sense of disappointment at the end of his life, most particularly over the Harbour Bridge affairs. Obituary in the journal, building concluded, and on and on it goes, citing things all over the place. Now, of course, you know I've set you up here. The first one is the ADB entry, the piece of trash. The second one is the Wikipedia one. Thankfully, no one reads the ADB one. Now, the Wikipedia one... Uh, was written by historian uh, Catherine Frayne because the Dictionary of Sydney, for whom she wrote it for, uh, has a, a Creative Commons uh, share-alike attribution licence. The second one is... Um, second example is of an early Australian electrical engineer called uh, Florence Violet Mackenzie. The ADB entry entirety is on the left there at the same scale there's the Wikipedia entry. Again, 
written by Catherine Frayne, Creative Commons license, Wikipedia stole it, if you can steal something written under such a license, reused it, repurposed it, put it to good use, so that all these people would read it. Because otherwise, they'd be reading a trashy one. Uh, we saw the lovely graphs that Scott and uh, Christine have been producing today. Uh, so I'll just mention, uh, as a slight benefit, I'm, although I'm an IT person, I think most of this sort of stuff's you know, pretty marginal, but uh, there, Wikipedia, data in Wikipedia uh, joins this great universe of linked data, and uh, so the, uh, the Wikipedia project has actually linked uh, 12,654 12, biographies in Wikipedia to the biography in ADB. So because they, they acknowledge, they don't, they're not stupid, they like reading themselves and they love the ADB entries and they'd love to take them and use them. So they've linked them to them so at least they can mine them for useful information. And uh, as a demonstration, for example, here is how you can do a query that combines uh, the Wikipedia's geolocation information and mapping data with the birthplace in ADB and produce a graph. Okay, uh, it's all very interesting, but that isn't the main game. The main game is uh, why do you bother writing at all? Well, a few years after he wrote Animal Farm, uh, George Orwell, in his own inimitable way, way, reflected on his motivations and the motivations of others for writing. And he identified four reasons that probably many of you are familiar with here. But I'd like to just briefly go through them. Um, first one, of course, is to show your mastery, sheer egotism. Um, and, of course, to be remembered and possibly to help your genes get, um, uh, or find a partner and, and make sure your genes survive for another generation or two. Um, then there's the aesthetic enthusiasm, which is uh, your love for the subject and, of course, for just writing, and for good writing in particular. And thirdly, there's that historical impulse that drives people to explore and understand a subject in great depth and try to package their views so that they are preserved for the future and f so that future generations will, will, will gain that, that knowledge. And finally, there's, uh, well, especially for George Orwell, I suspect, there's that political purpose to try to nudge society in a different direction. Now, of course, for any of these things to have any effect, there's no point writing if what you're writing isn't read and isn't having influence. So um, there, there are many fantastic um, biographies, of course, in the ADB. And uh, I know one of Barry Jones's favourite, I think he mentioned that when he launched the endowment fund in 2009, was the um, P.A. Howell biography of um, uh, Jack Ellerton, Sir Jack Ellerton uh, uh, Becker, because... Um, he described him as, uh, so Jack Ellerton, he was a, a property speculator, a land speculator, and uh, he actually got his knighthood in exchange for paying off the debts of the, of the Academy of Science. Uh, and uh, he retired to a, a tropical island with any, no friends and family, or his wife, I think, and garden gnomes, and uh, having disinherited his daughter, his only daughter, who lived in poverty. And uh, P.A. Howell completes that biography <laughs> with a wonderful sentence. His only generous uh, act was a tax-deductible purchase of privilege. And uh, I think it would be a wonderful thing if all Australians had the opportunity to come across that when they're searching on, on Wikipedia. I'd like to conclude, however, by uh, this, this morning, uh, Dr. Philip Carter uh, referenced, his talk referenced uh, uh, American historian Ro uh, Roy Rosenweig and the article he wrote in the Journal of American History in 2006. He concludes, and he, which was a, a study of how s historical scholarship could possibly make it into Wikipedia. And I'm sure my, my colleagues will tell me how difficult this is, and I know Kerry Kilner's experience is extremely difficult. Um, but I think uh, it's, it's a case of, you know, History isn't just written by the victors, it's, uh, it's the, the history that people read is the, the history that's important. So the getting, in, getting into Wikipedia is very important, but Roy Rosenwhite concluded his essay with this. Whether historians consider alternative models for producing their own work, they should pay very cl or close attention 
the erstwhile competitors Wikipedia and Microsoft, they should, sorry, pay closer attention to their, their erstwhile competitors at Wikipedia than Microsoft devoted to worrying about the obscure, free and open source operating system called Linux. And I'll conclude there. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much, Jock, Malcolm and Kent. Uh, Jock and Malcolm, you mightn't have known you were going to be drawn into a debate, but I think you've just had a gauntlet chucked at you. Um, I suppose, Jock, you began really talking about what use would we make of biographies in, an, in, a, in a project that was born digital? And I think that's a really interesting idea, not how would you take biographies and feed them into a digital resource, but how might biographies look in a resource that was born digital? Malcolm then drew us into a consideration of issues of inclusiveness within a critical awareness of the nation, always inclusiveness testing the boundaries of what we take to be the nation. Kent, I suppose you've left us with how national figures figure in what you refer to as the great universe of linked data and whether it's that great universe of linked data that really is the future for the kind of writing that we seek to do. There are plenty of challenges there and I think plenty of propositions that you might like to debate. So over to you. While, I, while you were all speaking, though, I kept going back to Benedict Anderson's formulation of imagined communities and thinking, to some extent, what we're looking at now is the way in which digitization is another form of imagining the nation. Is it? Or is there something inherently antithetical between digitization and imagining the nation or imagining the community that is a nation? But that's enough for me, unless you want me